Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Will Stevenson. This week, to mark the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday in Peoria, former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder came to town. He spoke at the annual King Day luncheon hosted by the Peoria Group, Public Employees for Community Concern. Holder made history when he became the first African-American attorney general in the country's history during the Barack Obama administration. We're gathered here today to commemorate the birth of a man who was taken from us far too soon. Now, it's hard to think about his birth 94 years ago without remembering also his untimely death and the work that he left undone, the work that was left undone. You know, we still feel that deepest of wounds, the passing of a man, but not the death of a dream. The vicious murder of our nation's most committed, most courageous, and most consequential drum major for justice, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. But on this day, we must also commit ourselves, commit ourselves to making real the dream that animated his too short life. Now, the anniversary of Dr. King's birth provides, I think, an important opportunity not only to celebrate and to reflect upon his extraordinary life, but also to consider where we, where we now are as a nation, to take stock of our progress, to take responsibility for the work that remains before us, and to rededicate ourselves to the dream of social, racial, and economic justice that is Dr. King's living, living legacy. But let's also, let's also confront the truth about Dr. King. Now, in his short lifetime, Dr. King forced this nation, forced America to face what he termed the three evils, racism, poverty, and war. Racism, poverty, and war. Though he is revered now, his focus on dismantling those evils oftentimes made him an unpopular figure. And that's true. He was not always a popular figure. By 1966, and this is just two years before his untimely death, a Gallup poll found that almost two-thirds of Americans had an unfavorable opinion of Dr. King. 67% of the people polled thought they had a negative opinion of Dr. King. Now, as he emphasized his opposition to war and spread the focus of his work outside of the South, he became a threatening, polarizing, and disliked figure. For many, he was almost a pariah. Now, I was too young to realize when I first heard of his assassination in that moment of grief and heartbreak how powerfully his spirit would live on. I did not yet understand at that young age that no act of violence no act of hate could have any temporal disfavor uh, or that any temporal disfavor was strong enough to hold back the movement that Dr. King had launched or deny the dream that he had already set in motion. I could not have imagined back then how passionately his many partners and supporters, some of them not yet born, but certainly including his remarkable wife, Coretta Scott King, and John Lewis, would carry his work forward. And I never could have predicted that the trail that he blazed in his 39 years on this earth would impact my own life. There is a direct line. There's a direct line 
from his leadership on the front lines of the struggle to my service many decades later as our nation's first African-American Attorney General and the election of our nation's first African-American President. Barack and I would not have had the opportunity to serve in those positions without the sacrifices, the vision, and the accomplishments of Dr. King. Now, I wish that he could be here with us. I wish that Dr. King could be with us so that he could see how the new country that he helped to create has improved. I wish he could see how the system of American apartheid that he fought against has been legally dismantled. I wish he could see how people of all races treasure the memorial in his honor that now stands in our National Mall in Washington, D.C. Above all, though, I wish he could see how effectively concerned women, LGBTQ Americans, still distressed minority communities, and now students and citizens who have seen enough gun violence and threats to our democracy have canonized Dr. King's tactics and how in acts of really King-inspired nonviolent protest, they've launched their own movements calling for and marching for fairness, opportunity, and justice. You know, despite the extraordinary progress that has shaped the last five decades and transformed really our entire society, we are still marching. We are still striving. And we are still calling on our nation's leaders to act with a sense of justice, compassion, as well as common humanity. Because the, the unfortunate fact is that in 2023, America's long struggle to overcome injustice, to eliminate disparities, and to eradicate violence, that all still continues. And the age of bullies and bigots is not fully behind us. Bull Connor and Jim Clark are gone, but part of their legacy endures in the highest segments of our governments. Now, in my travels across this great nation, I often hear from people, and especially from young people, who tell me that they sometimes feel lost in their own country, unsure of where they belong, and fearful that America's two long-standing divisions are threatening again to tear our nation apart. This is indeed a time of challenge and a time of consequence. But you know, Dr. King was no stranger to such moments. You know, throughout his life, and most famously on the eve of his death as he delivered that seminal mountaintop speech that would be his final sermon, Reverend King, Reverend King asked himself when, if given any period in time, if given any period in time, Reverend King was asked, when would he choose to be alive? And this question began with a journey through the ages. And at each stop, whether Mount Olympus or ancient Rome, Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, or Franklin Roosevelt's call to fear, only fear itself, Dr. King asked himself what era he would choose to experience and to help shape. Ultimately, he decided it would be his own. Happiness, he explained, comes from embracing the blessings and burdens of destiny and the opportunities that arise in difficult times. Dr. King said, only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. Well, recent years and events have starkly reminded us that once again, it is indeed dark enough. We have not yet reached the promised land, but today once more, we can see the stars. We see them in the courage and commitment of ordinary people nationwide, Americans of all ages, races, and backgrounds 
who refuse to give in to fear and frustration, who, resent, who resist shameful attempts to exploit and to divide the American people, and who are keeping up the fight for the safety and voting and civil rights of all. We see them in the people who peacefully take to the streets and to the offices of their elected leaders. We see them in the examples of those who, in the wake of senseless tragedy on, brought on by unnecessary gun violence, have found their voices in calling for common sense solutions that respect our forebearers, our law enforcement community, and our legal system, while prioritizing our most valuable resource, our children. You know, it is times like these when the power of Dr. King's examples and his enduring words are brought into really stark focus. And one of the most important lessons he left is that the journey to the promised land requires the work of us all. We not only have the right to be free, Dr. King urged, we have a, a duty to be free. We not only have the right to be free, we have the duty to be free. And that duty must not be borne lightly. We must push our society in order to achieve a more perfect union that lives up to those lofty values in our Declaration of Independence, to ensure that our society realizes the truths that were proclaimed in that document. All men and women are created equal and endowed with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, let me be clear. It is necessary for us to be indignant. It is necessary for us to take action. This is what animates Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, impatience. It is the bedrock of his work, impatience. But the fact that Dr. King's strength was rooted in frustration, as much as it was rooted in faith, is a great comfort to me. I say that because as proud as I am of our country, as proud as I am of my country, and as grateful as I feel for the progress that we have made and the opportunities that the civil rights movement has made available to me, the truth is that like Dr. King, I am dissatisfied. More of former Attorney General Eric Holder when Week in Review continues. We continue now with the speech given by former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder at Peoria's annual Martin Luther King Day luncheon, hosted by public employees for community concern. When we left off, Holder was saying, like Dr. King, he is dissatisfied with how much progress civil rights has made since King's time. Progress is not enough now. It's not enough to say that we have made progress. It is time for the birth of the desired solutions. Let's get beyond progress. Let's get to the solutions. So, so I, like Dr. King, am dissatisfied. I am dissatisfied that every day in America, 300 of our fellow citizens are shot. And we have hundreds of mass shootings every year. I am dissatisfied that economic progress remains uneven, that educational opportunity is far from uniform, and that in the face of these facts, black people are supposed to be satisfied by whatever crumbs are thrown to us from those in power. I am dissatisfied that I have had to have the talk with my own teenage son 
the conversation that so many black families in America have had in order to protect their children about how to safely interact with people in law enforcement. But as the retired, as the brother of a retired police officer and as someone who has spent his career working hand in hand with the women and men in law enforcement, I'm also dissatisfied that the unpunished bad actions by a few have sown widespread mistrust for the dedicated, honorable men and women who wear the badge and act valiantly to protect our communities. I'm also dissatisfied that too many women, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, lesbian, gay, and transgender Americans, and people with disabilities still yearn for equal opportunity and fair treatment. And I'm also dissatisfied that more than a half a century after Dr. King helped to pass the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965, far too many Americans, for far too many Americans, the right to vote and the assurance that one's vote will be counted fairly remains under siege. To me, to me, this is the chief civil rights issue of our time. And in that regard, our nation is not as different as it should be from the America that existed during the life of Dr. King. You know, the Selma March was about the right to vote. The deaths of those three civil rights workers in Mississippi in 1964 was about the right to vote. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 has justifiably been called the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. So much of Dr. King's work was to ensure the right to vote. And as he so often pointed out, the ability of all eligible citizens to participate in and to have an equal voice in the work and direction of our government is not a privilege. It's not a privilege. It's a right. The ability to vote is not a privilege. It is a right. And as Lyndon Johnson said, and I quote, the vote is the most powerful instrument ever devised by man for breaking down injustice and destroying the terrible walls which imprison men and women because they are different from others. Now, our, our nation's policies are determined by those who serve in elected office. And we must make certain that these representatives accurately reflect the choices of the American electorate and not the special interests. Yet in many communities today, our political system is far from fair. It has been undermined by spurious and outright false claims of widespread voter fraud, absurd contentions of stolen elections, and by acts of voter suppression and the harmful purging of voter rolls. And it's been rigged by racial and partisan gerrymandering. That's why I published that book last year, Our Unfinished March, not only to highlight the problems and continuing attacks on voting rights in the courts and in communities nationwide, but also to offer some concrete solutions as to how we can ensure a better future. And that's why I helped to launch also, and I'm proud to chair the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. The NDRC is working to make our democracy more representative, and we're attacking this from every angle. We're working to rebuild a system where citizens choose their representatives, and to dismantle an unjust status quo, where in too many places, through gerrymandering, politicians are picking their voters. We're working to ensure that voting maps are drawn fairly and the integrity of the Voting Rights Act is upheld. 
or working to erase laws that make your ability to cast a ballot a function of your age, your ethnicity, or your party, and not connected to this nation. And we need your help. But joining this fight is just one of the many ways you can honor Dr. King's legacy and help to assure America's future. It is time for each of us to ask, as Dr. King so famously did, and I quote here, he said, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? How do we fulfill our duty to be free? That duty to be free. What more can we do as individuals and as a society to help realize Dr. King's vision of racial and social equality? Each of us, everybody here today has to ask themselves the question, what am I doing? What are you doing? It's great that you're here and listening to this speech. Well, I hope it's great. <laughs> and it's great that you are commemorating Dr. King's birthday. What are you doing? What are you doing? What more can we do as individuals and as a society to help realize Dr. King's vision of racial and social equality? Each of us has to ask ourselves again, what am I doing? How can we lift up the values that were at the heart of his sermons, the root of his actions, the core of his character, and the center of his life? Most importantly, how can we heal this divided nation as he sought to do? and bring our fellow citizens together in the name of tolerance, nonviolence, compassion, love, and above all, justice. You know, it's only by coming together that we can write the next great chapter of America's story. You know, Dr. King is often quoted as saying <clears throat> that the arc of the moral universe is long, but that it bends towards justice. And that's true. But it only happens when caring, committed people like you grab hold of that arc and pull it towards justice. Positive change is not promised. It is the result of hard work and great sacrifice. What are you doing? <clears throat> so today, let's not merely reflect upon our past or the memory of a great man. Let's pledge our best efforts to protect the advances that we have inherited from him and make real the legacy that's been entrusted to each of us by the good man who we celebrate today. That is our charge. And this is our moment. This is our time. This is our moment. As easy as it is, we must not look longingly back towards a past that was comforting to too few and unjust to too many. This nation must end this mindless, backward-looking quest to make America great again. To make America great today, we must do the difficult things. To make, <clears throat> to make America great today, we must do the difficult things. Embrace the uncertainties of the future, and then shape that future in the way that truly great American generations in the past always have. This cannot be the first generation of Americans to fail at that task. This is our time. We must not give in to irrational fear and manufactured division, but instead embrace needed trust and national unity. Do not gather you know, once a year and make Dr. King a vision from the past. Embrace his work, his vision, 
and make him a living guide to a better future. Again, again, never forget that positive change is not promised. It comes about only as a direct result of commitment, action, sacrifice, endurance, and adherence to the values that we must hold dear. As Dr. King said, and I'll quote again, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. So let us rise to the challenges of our time. And in the spirit of Dr. King, let us signal to the world today that in America today, the pursuit of a more perfect union lives on, the more march towards the promised land goes on, and the belief not only that we shall overcome, but that we will truly come together as one nation continues to push us forward. So may God continue to bless Dr. King and our journey, and may God continue to bless the United States of America. Thank you. Former Attorney General Eric Holder. He also took questions from the audience about things like the handling of classified documents under Presidents Biden and Trump and Illinois' new but on hold assault weapons ban, but we will not be able to bring that to you because of time. More Week in Review coming up. This week, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker was in Davos, Switzerland, participating in the World Economic Forum. Here at home, however, two state lawsuits and one federal lawsuit were filed against Illinois' new assault weapons ban, questioning whether or not it violates the Second Amendment and whether the process that led to its passage was right. In a conference call with statewide news reporters, Pritzker talked about both. Here is just a short portion of that discussion. What a fantastic week it's been here in uh, Switzerland, and even though we've seen no break from the same cold weather that you're having at home, uh, my team and I have spent the last few days having very important conversations with world leaders and promoting Illinois as a major player on the world stage, talking to businesses that are here, uh, including major tech companies as well as uh, other industrial players. Uh, we've made it very clear that when looking for nation-leading legislation uh, and leadership on fighting climate change and clean energy development, uh, that you don't need to stop at the coastal states making significant progress and passing bold legislation uh, that impacts our, our state and our region and the nation and really the world uh, in real and tangible ways. Uh, I would remind everybody on this call, as I remind people here at Davos, that uh, Illinois would be around the 19th largest economy in the world if we were an independent com country, uh, and uh, so we would be a member of G20 uh, if we were independent, and uh, you know, we're a major economy, even though we are the fifth largest uh, economy in the among the 50 United States. Um, we've been a pivotal leader on clean energy. The signing of the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act and the REV Act are just examples of that. Um, we're continuing to prioritize clean, sustainable growth uh, through our infrastructure as a main tenet of the Rebuild Illinois Capital Plan. Uh, our state's committed to 100% clean energy by 2050. That's an important calling card here. Uh, and, of course, we're hoping to put a million electric vehicles on the road 
by 2030 in Illinois, and we're actually taking substantive steps to make that and those several goals happen. We're also leading the way on responsible gun control. Uh, just last week, uh, I signed the Protect Illinois Communities Act into law, making Illinois the not the first, not the second, but the ninth state in the nation uh, to institute an assault weapons ban, um, very much like uh, several of the other states that already have them. And despite the outcry from the gun lobby and those that they fund, uh, this law will make millions of Illinoisans safer, uh, protecting them from constantly living in fear of becoming a statistic in uh, potentially the next mass shooting that splashes across uh, our headlines. Um, of course, that's only part of what's so great about Illinois, and I, I always say I, I am the state's best chief marketing officer, and I'm making sure that people know about our leadership on safeguarding reproductive rights, on uh, our uh, focus on fiscal responsibility, uh, our booming manufacturing sector, uh, and the fact that we are full of brilliant talent from uh, our world-class universities and our uh, nation-leading, you know, third largest in the nation community college system. Uh, and so much more that, that, that we're leading in. We, we have, uh, we are number six in our K-12 education system in the country, according to U.S. News. And, uh, there's a lot to offer in terms of the talent of the people of Illinois. So I'm really glad to have been invited, uh, here to Switzerland to talk about the great state of Illinois, the great people who live, uh, in Illinois and uh, make sure that people on the world stage are aware. Uh, and I can't wait to come home uh, and take what we've learned here and the connections that we've made to make our state even stronger. And I'm happy to take any questions from uh, anybody that's on the call. Governor, if you could just address some of the critics back here at home. Uh, some of the critics from downstate say that you're, quote, hobnobbing with global elites while being out of touch with those back home who can't afford heating costs. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, you know, First and foremost, you know, we're here to highlight for the world the state's progress, the, the progress in building our economy, the progress in uh, our uh, focus on fiscal responsibility, and, of course, our progress in development of clean energy. Uh, you know, uh, it's important for Illinois to be seen uh, on the world stage as a, a, as a, a destination for the companies that uh, exist across the world. Uh, some of them already are doing business in Illinois. Some of them are thinking about where they want to put their operations in Illinois. Uh, the countries that are represented here are thinking about what states they want to be aligned with and, and, and work with and uh, as their companies in their states are looking about uh, you know, their next, uh, you know, building of factories and plants and so on. Uh, and, you know, they should know we have record and uh, that we're a, a leading state. Uh, that's why uh, it is important for a, a leader of Illinois to show up in places outside of Illinois. Uh, that's how you attract business and, and let people know what a great state we really are. Governor, one last question for me, if I could. Just one last question, if I could, um, uh, just briefly on the gun issue. Yesterday there was an uh, emergency hearing in Effingham County. Uh, the plaintiffs in the case say that they're confident they're going to get a, uh, 
temporary restraining order uh, only for those affected clients of Attorney Thomas DeVore. Your thoughts on uh, the trajectory of your gun ban in the courts? Look, the state has a lot of experience litigating over uh, legislation or actions that a small minority oppose. And, you know, we know that, that it will sometimes, unfortunately, take time in the courts to present all of our arguments and get the right results. We saw that sometimes during COVID, uh, the worst parts of COVID anyway, when there were people who were grandstanding and going into court and getting decisions at a lower court that ultimately were ruled unconstitutional or ruled, uh, you know, overturned rather by uh, appellate courts. Uh, but I, I'm very confident that uh, the courts ultimately will uphold the constitutionality uh, of uh, the laws that we have passed. And uh, the legislation was, you know, thoughtfully considered by uh, constitutional experts, legal experts, you know, legislators, advocates, uh, just because somebody, you know, goes on Fox News or uh, stands up and gives a speech uh, on the floor uh, or elsewhere uh, and, uh, you know, and says that they've talked to lawyers and, uh, you know, and they believe it's unconstitutional, uh, that isn't definitive uh, of whether anything is constitutional or not. It, it really needs to go through the court system. Uh, and we're trying to make Illinois a safer place for every resident. I think people know, certainly the majority of Illinoisans understand that uh, assault weapons are uh, a danger to have uh, available for sale uh, in in Illinois, and, and they no longer are. Um, and this is, uh, you know, I think you know this, Greg, uh, you know, there's a lot of political grandstanding going on by uh, people who are beholden to the gun lobby uh, and uh, who are not focused on the safety of their constituents, but rather uh, focused on just making political pronouncements that they think might uh, have a, you know, a positive effect for them uh, with their, you know, their, the constituents that, uh, you know, that, that they're playing to. But um, I'm committed to protecting Illinoisans from the constant fear, uh, you know, that they're under of being gunned down in a place of worship or at a school uh, or in their neighborhood. More Week in Review coming up. If you're a voter in Peoria County, you may soon get an option to vote without ever having pretty much to go into a voting booth ever again. A permanent vote by mail is a new thing in the state of Illinois, and there are Peoria County voters eligible. Elizabeth Gannon is the executive director of the Peoria County Election Commission, and she joins me on the phone to talk about that. Elizabeth, good morning. Thanks for your time. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Am I right in saying that this is a relatively new thing that the state has rolled out? You are, yes. So it was actually implemented last year in 2022. And this mailing is going to be the second mailing uh, that we're doing. It is required to be sent out before every general election uh, to anybody who is not currently enrolled in the program. How many uh, from the last election here in November do we know? How many people took advantage of voting by mail, just in a, in a broad sense, without, without maybe the permanence of it, if you will? Uh, I believe it was around 20% of the voting population voted by mail. From what you know about the program, what kind of led to this being sort of a, a, a permanent type of a thing versus uh, how we think uh, traditionally a vote by mail? Well, I think it was twofold, really. I think the pandemic had something to do with it, for sure, um, that a lot of people voted by mail for the first time. And I think once you do it, you really don't 
ever not do it again. It's so convenient and easy. Uh, and I also think that um, there's a lot of states that are, that's the only way that you can vote is by mail. And so I think it's kind of a trend in elections that's um, heading towards that way. And I think Illinois is headed down that path. So I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's still a lot of people, it seems, that have, and perhaps rightfully so, some doubts about voting by mail or doing any other method than going to an actual voting booth on election day, not absentee voting, not voting by mail, not early voting, not any of that. What would what would you say to people, I guess, when that comes up that uh, they still don't trust any other way except for the traditional way to vote? I would say that there is a lot of misinformation out there and to educate yourself. We have a list of myths around voting by mail on our website. Uh, I would encourage you to check that out for sure. Um, and you can always call the office and we would be happy to answer any questions that you have. But, you know, voting by mail, it isn't for everybody. Some people really like the experience of going into their polling place and seeing their neighbors and, and that's fine. I think that will always be an option in some way, whether that be a vote center, um, or, you know, or your polling place on election day. But I, there are a lot of you know, misconceptions out there around voting by mail. And it's just not all of those are accurate. And so I would say just educate yourself and get the facts. All right. Um, let's let's talk about this process. Um, if you've already applied to vote by mail, are you getting something new or, or, or how does the process work from here? Sure. So if you are already signed up for the permanent vote by mail program, you will not be receiving um, a postcard in the mail. We currently have around 13,800 registered voters in Peoria County signed up for the program um, out of our about 119,000 registered voters in the county. So uh, around almost 90,000 postcards will be going out next week. Um, and then if we have your email on file, we're emailing you that uh, information to your inbox. Oh, that's great. That's uh, That makes it sound like it's pretty convenient. When somebody does get um, a card in the mail or an email, uh, what should they what should they look for? How should they know it's legit? Well, it'll have the Peoria County Election Commission information on there um, and uh, with a phone number, address, all of that. And it will be pink, so you'll know it's coming. It'll be a pink postcard in the mail from the Election Commission office. So when you receive it, make sure that you read through it because uh, there are actually two different ways that you can sign up to be on the permanent vote-by-mail program. You can choose to only receive ballots in elections that do not require a party designation. Most of the time, those are general elections. Um, or you can choose to receive a ballot for all elections, and you would make a party choice, and then we would always send you that party. You get this postcard or this email uh, based on uh, what you have on file, but uh, some other folks may have already received a vote-by-mail application, right? There are. Any outside organization can create their own vote-by-mail application and send it out, um, so it's possible. Um, but you'll just know that the one that's coming from our office will have the Peoria County Election Commission name, address, and it will be on a pink postcard. And once you get the uh, the card or the email or however you choose to apply, you, you really kind of need to do it sooner rather than later, I, I would imagine, given that there's an election here just a couple of months away, right? 
Yeah, we would appreciate that. So it's going to be a lot of data entry for us in the office to get all of you entered into the program. And vote by mail begins on February 23rd. So that is right around the corner, about a month away. So we've got a, a lot of work to do in the coming week. You get this information in the mail or in your email, but if you don't want to vote by mail, you just ignore it and go go on about your business, right? Exactly. And and don't be offended if it's it's I have to send it to you by law. If you never want to be involved in the program, please just know that statute says I still have to send it to you. So please just disregard it. Um, you, you're not being, you know, you're not being forced to do this. It's still your option, but I have to give you that. So, um, so, that so talk to your uh, friendly local lawmaker if you don't like how this process <laughs> works, right? Exactly. I, I, and I'm one. We're, we're actually are the um, election officials throughout Illinois are trying to get this portion of the law changed to allow for an opt-out program, and then also to only do it in even years instead of odd and even years. So we're working on it, um, but until it is changed, we have to continue to follow the law as it is. And Elizabeth Gannon, Executive Director of the Peoria County Election Commission. Thank you again so much for your time and uh, for explaining this to us. Anytime. Thank you so much again for inviting me. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. For Instant News 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at 1470WMBD.com. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.